do appreciate uh, everyone's presence today. We're glad you're here. Whether you're visiting or regular member here, we're especially glad for the presence of each one. We do have some, some visiting, as we do a lot of times in the summertime, people camping at the park or people passing through. And uh, we have some families uh, visiting in that way with us today. Uh, and they have their children with them. And I just think, well, what, what a wonderful lesson to teach their children. Uh, even while we're on vacation, even when we're away from home, even when we are not with the regular congregation we attend, we're, as a family, taking time to worship God, teaching our children that it's important to take that time every week to express our gratitude to God and praise Him. So not only are we fulfilling our individual responsibilities, we're teaching some valuable lessons along the way as well, and I really appreciate that a great deal. When I look at the book of Revelation this morning, we just finished last quarter a six-month study of the book of Revelation, and so some of the things we have to say uh, will maybe reinforce what we've studied during that period. Now, notice I don't use the word repetition. I use the word reinforce. And so uh, we're going to reinforce some things maybe that we talked about as we went through the book. The book of Revelation is a, contains a message, both a message of encouragement and a message of warning. And so it communicates both of those ideas. Christians are encouraged to persevere, to be faithful to the Lord, to endure hardship, even to the point of death. Revelation 2 in verse 10, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. But it's also a message of warning as well. Those who are not faithful are going to suffer a terrible fate. The 21st chapter in verse 8 tells us that uh, those who are cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their part will be, uh, they'll have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. And so there's, there's encouragement, be faithful, persevere, hold fast. And there's also warning, if you don't hold fast, if you uh, give up on the faith, if you turn away, if you're unfaithful to your commitment, well, a terrible fate is, is waiting. Now, the message is, is communicated in an exciting way. If you studied the book of Revelation, you know, you know that to be, to be true. And so instead of communicating his message in a straightforward way like we might find in the epistles or in, in the gospels, John describes scenes that were revealed to him in a vision. And so he describes horses and angels and beasts, a dragon, locusts, frogs, an earthquake or earthquakes, stars falling from heaven and crashing into the earth, plagues and death. And so in describing these visions, John is communicating a message. Now, he could have stated it in a straightforward way, but he does it in a different way and communicates his message nonetheless and in a very, very effective way but, uh, in the, by describing these visions. Suffice it to say that the book spoke to the first readers in a powerful way, and we're not going to take the time to explain all the details, of course. But those first Christians living in Asia Minor were undergoing tremendous pressure to do obeisance, to pay homage, to worship the empire and its emperor, the Caesar. 
Those who refuse to do that might very, very well suffer hardship. They might suffer economic hardship. They might not be able to go to the market and buy and sell. And so they would be deprived of sometimes even the daily necessities. And if they refuse to pay homage to and do obeisance to the emperor and the empire, they might even be put into prison. Some of them had been. And some of them had even been killed for their faithfulness to Christ. But the Lord, the book looks forward to a time when the Lord is going to put things right. He's going to vindicate His people and He's going to judge those who oppress His people. Those who oppress Him are going to be thrown into a great winepress of the wrath of God. And just like you would pour grapes into the winepress and tread them down with your feet, so these will be trodden down in the, the wrath of God. They're, they're going to be defeated and they're going to be punished. On the other hand, those who overcome, those who are faithful, will be rewarded. They'll go to heaven where they'll see God face to face and serve Him through eternity. This morning we're going to look at a song that those who overcome sing in the presence of the Lord. Just look at the details of the song and hope that it serves as some encouragement to us. And so look in your New Testament to Revelation chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses, well, we're going to begin in verse 2 and go down through verse 4. And so here's a vision that John sees. And he says, I saw something like a sea of glass. And so he invites us to use our imagination. I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and all the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. So we're going to just spend our time talking about this, what I've called a hymn of victory or a victory hymn. And so these who, these, this song is sung by those who have won the victory. They've overcome. They're standing in the presence of God and they're praising Him through this song. And so notice that these are, this is sung by those who have overcome or who are victorious over the beast. You see that in verse 2. The beast, his image, his number, all refer to the agent of Satan. And so these agents, these minions of Satan have been trying to draw people away from the Lord and persuade them to denounce the Lord or to reject Him. And, and so they've refused to do that. They've been faithful to the Lord. They've refused to renounce Him. They've held true to their confession. And in spite of all the difficulty and all the challenges and all the hardship that they had to endure as a result of that, they've overcome. And now they stand in the presence of God. The idea of overcoming or being victorious runs throughout the book. You remember in the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, at the end of each one of those, to those who overcome, to those who win the victory, Various rewards will be given. And then in chapter 5, the Lamb of God has overcome to take the book out of the hand of the one who's sitting on the throne. 
And then Revelation chapter 21 and verse 7, there to those who overcome, they, they, they will inherit these things, the, the things that are described in chapters 21 and 22. And so these have been involved in tremendous conflict. That's what the word overcome or victory suggests. They've been involved in warfare and conflict. And yet they have overcome. They've won the victory. Revelation 7 describes a similar scene. In verse 9, he says that this constitutes a great multitude. There's a great multitude who have overcome and stand in the presence of God. And so make no mistake about it, we're involved in conflict. It's a spiritual conflict. Uh, Satan and his agents are trying to draw us away from the Lord just as he was trying to draw them away from the Lord. Now his weapons and his tactics might be a little bit different in our case, but he's making his effort nonetheless, and he's trying mightily to draw us away. And so Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of weakness, weakness in the heavenly places. Therefore take the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. We're in conflict. Now, it's not a fleshly conflict, it's a spiritual conflict, but it's conflict nonetheless. And so we, like they, need to put on the full armor of God so that we can withstand the attempts of Satan to draw us away. The Lord is our captain in this battle. We are soldiers in His army. And either we fight and overcome or we are overcome by the enemy. Notice that these are standing on a sea of glass mixed with fire. That reminds us of Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6 where there's a great sea of glass before the one who's sitting on the throne. And they have harps in their hands which represent the praises that they are directing to the one on the throne. You see that in Revelation 14 verses 2 and 3. They're singing the song of Moses who is the lawgiver and leader of Israel. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, to the promised land. And so the song of Moses, the song of the leader and the lawgiver. And then the song of the Lamb, who uh, is, is uh, slain for his faithfulness as a sacrifice for sin. And so imagine the scene. A great multitude standing before the throne on a sea of glass. They're raising their voices, blending their voices together, singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And here is what they say. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. just want to highlight a few things from this psalm. You'll notice that the psalm highlights the attributes of God, or the, the character of God. That's, that's one of the chief features of this particular song. And so God is called the Lord God, the Almighty. The Lord is the master. He's the ruler. He has ultimate authority. And so that He is being praised for that power and that authority. 
and uh, that, uh, that, that, that rule and sovereignty that He exercises. He is God. He is divinity and deity. He possesses power, and He is almighty. And so they're praising the Lord, the Master, God, the ultimate source of power in the universe, the Almighty. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, there Abraham is, uh, uh, God, God approaches Abraham, appears to Abraham, and says to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. You know, this, this is really, it's really two words, isn't it? Almighty. We kind of crunch them together into one, Almighty. And so God is Almighty. He has ultimate power. The Bible says that there's not anything that He cannot do. And so whatever can be done, God can do. This is the word El Shaddai. And so maybe uh, you come across that in your study from time to time, El Shaddai. God's might is seen in His works, who we'll talk about a little bit later. But Genesis 18, verse 14, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Jeremiah 32, in verse 17, nothing is too difficult for you, speaking to the Lord. And the Lord then asked in verse 27, is there anything too difficult for me? And we have a word that describes this power of God. We say that He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is almighty. He is absolutely sovereign over His people. There's not anything He cannot do. And think about these people who are singing this song to Him and what they've been through, what their experience has been. And God has enabled them to pass through the difficulty of being faithful to Him. And now they are vindicated and before His throne. God, You have enabled us. You've empowered us to be victorious. You have all power. <laughs> and, we, and we praise You for that. He's also described as righteous and true. This actually says, righteous and true are your ways. But, of course, His ways are righteous and true because He is righteous and true. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we have the song of Moses. We can describe this as the song of Moses. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, The rock, His work is perfect. All His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice Righteous and upright is He. A God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright is He. And so we see the righteousness of God emphasizes in that particular place. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, that's the occasion when Abram is negotiating with the Lord. Will you, will you destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? If I can find 50 righteous people, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And the rhetorical question is asked, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, of course he will. His ways are righteous because he is righteous. What God does is right. He will make sure that right is done. He is just. He's going to make sure that right is upheld, that justice is upheld. He rules with impartiality. He rewards the innocent and the faithful, without allowing the guilty to go unpunished. You know, at times I think we need to be reassured concerning the rightness of God's actions and be patient. Sometimes we wonder, don't we? 
Is God aware of what's going on down here? Is God simply going to allow this injustice to continue? Doesn't he see that wrong things are being done and unjust, unjust things are being Isn't he going to do something? Yes, he will do something. God is a righteous God. He's going to do what's right. He's going to vindicate the righteous. He's not going to leave the guilty unpunished. They may do it in His way, in His time, and it may be ultimately in the judgment day when all of that is settled. So be patient. Just persevere. Be faithful. And God will vindicate you. God will reward you. God is righteous. And He is true as well. Philosophers talk a lot about truth, and you can read page after page after page about what is true, what is truth. Suffice it to say that nothing, God, there's nothing deceptive in God. There's not anything deceptive in Him. There's nothing false in Him. There's nothing duplicitous in God. Now, now the idols are false. They are false gods, but God is true. Human rulers, at best, are a mixture of truth and, and error, of right and wrong. At best, that's what human rulers are. But God is true. He's always trustworthy. He never should be doubted. And if He promises to His people, I will reward you if you're faithful to me, well, that's true. And we can, we can depend on that. We should never doubt that. And so be faithful, be patient, persevere. God is faithful. God is true. He is the King of the nations. Sometimes we say, he is king of kings. And so he rules over the kingdoms of men. And so he promises these people, now if you're faithful to me as a citizen of my kingdom, I'll reward you and I'll deal with an unjust kingdom. I'll deal with the kingdom of man who's oppressing you. After all, I'm in charge of and I'll rule over all the kingdoms of men. He's king of the nations. The 22nd Psalm in verse 28 says, The kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. The kingdom is the Lord's. The rule, the sovereignty, the dominion belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. Now I'm reminded of Daniel chapter 4, especially when I think about this. Remember, that's uh, uh, the passage that describes the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar. He's lifted up in, in his pride, and, and God brings him low and humbles him. And in the course of all that, we find this statement in verse 17. You need to know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And so God raises nations up and He brings them down and God puts humble men, lowly men in power and He brings the powerful down. God's simply in control of the nations. He's the, the King of kings. In Revelation, John reminds Christians that, that God's in control and the oppressing nation will be brought low. So, so persevere, persevere. What that also teaches us, don't put too much confidence in the kingdoms of men. <laughs> you know, the kingdoms of men come and go. They're, they're fallible. At best, a mixture of right and wrong and good and bad and truth and error. And so we need to be loyal to the king of kings. He is always true. And he's always right. And then we find the next 
description, you alone are holy. Holiness, like righteousness, justice, mercy, wisdom, is a fundamental attribute of God. What, what is God like? You know, when I, when I ask children that question in young, young Bible class, what, what is God like? And then they might give all kinds of answers. You know, he, he's powerful, he's wise, and all of that would be right. But the answer is really incomplete unless we emphasize the holiness of God as well. John expresses it this way in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. You know, if God was unholy to any degree, He would not be worthy of our worship and devotion, would He? If, if He were unholy to any degree, <laughs> He would not be worthy of our, of our devotion. The idea of being holy, of course, is to be set apart. God is set apart from all rivals in heaven and on earth. In both His divine attributes, His eternity, His power, His wisdom, and so forth, and in His moral purity. And so He's different from all other so-called gods, all human beings. In both His divine attributes, eternity, power, wisdom, all of those things, but also His moral purity. And so in Him is no darkness at all. Notice that these are singing, God alone is holy. What human is holy? What, any of us holy in, in the way God? No. Mm -mm. How about the, the gods and goddesses of uh, the Greeks or the Romans? Were, were, were they holy? <laughs> no, really, more or less glorified human beings, I think. And so no, no human being, no God, no goddess. God alone is holy. You know what follows from that? If God is holy, His people should strive for holiness as well. And so we ought to, as the Hebrew writer says, pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And remember 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so, God is holy, no darkness in Him at all, no moral impurity in Him at all, and we're striving to be like Him in that way, to imitate Him in that way. And so, th th these, these have overcome in the challenge, in the conflict. They've been faithful. Now they're standing before the Lord. And what are they doing? What are they singing about? What are they talking about? They're praising God. They're praising Him for His might, for His power, for His righteousness, that He is true and that He is holy. But they also praise Him for His work. And so we praise God for who He is, and we praise God for what He has done. Now, if, we were to, if I were to ask you now, now, I want you to compile a list of ten of the great works of God, the great and marvelous works of God. I, I suppose if we compared our list, we'd have a lot of the same things. Now, you might have a few different from me, and I might have a few different from you, but here, here are things that, here are some mighty works of God. He created the world, just spoke it into existence. He brought the flood upon the earth. He brought Israel through the Red Sea. He brought Israel through the wilderness to the promised land. 
He brought them into the promised land. He enabled them to conquer Jericho. They conquered and controlled the promised land and settled in it. They defeated the Canaanites. All of the inhabitants there of, of the land of Canaan, they conquered and they possessed the land and settled in it. And then God strengthened various individuals as well. He enabled David to defeat Goliath. He enabled Samson, you remember, in the of Dagon to, to pull the pillars down and, and, and bring the roof down on all the people that were gathered there. He vindicated Elijah as he contested with uh, prophets of Baal. God enabled a virgin to conceive. He through Christ performed miracles of healing. He gave sight to the blind. He fed thousands. He walked on water. He calmed the storm. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead as well, sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to aid in the preaching of the gospel. And so that's, that's about 10 of the wonderful works of God. And so I want you to think about that. Think about God and the wonderful works and the mighty works that He's done, the great works that He's performed. And if we're not in awe of Him for that, we're not thinking carefully enough about those things. These are great and marvelous works indeed. What's the result of all this? We think about who God is. We think about what God has done. Well, what's the result? Here's the rhetorical question. Who, in considering these things, will not fear and glorify God's name? You know, I have to think that if there's something wrong with our worship, if our worship is lacking, if our worship is is stale, if it's sterile and boring. We're not thinking carefully enough about these things. We're not care thinking carefully enough about who God is, about His attributes, His might, His righteous and true, His holiness. All, we're not thinking carefully enough about that. We're not thinking carefully enough about God's work, what, what He's done. And so that's what invigorates our worship, and that's what's meaningful. Uh, that's what makes it meaningful and significant to us. Notice he asks the question, who will not fear the Lord? It's one of the reasons I selected this passage. We've been talking about the fear of the Lord throughout the, the year, living in the fear of the Lord. We've talked about what ideas are included in that, in the fear of the Lord. There's that fear of what He might do if we are disobedient. We understand what He might do. We've talked about the judgment of the Lord that comes on those that are disobedient. These have overcome, so I don't know that they're in fear of the Lord in that way, but they still fear the Lord, don't they? They're in awe of Him. Ultimate respect for Him. I, I, I never have really been able to figure out sufficient, adequate synonyms for the fear of the Lord and what all that includes. Fear, dread, awe, respect, a sense of honor, the highest esteem and admiration. I don't know any of those, or, or all of those, are really sufficient to capture the idea. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, and in verse 7, we find this statement. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. 
They are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. (laughs) And so they're, well, he says, they're delusional, worshiping gods of wood and stone. When you, when you are the true God. And so we fear him. Stand in awe of him. The highest esteem for him. And what does that produce in us, that fear of the Lord? Well, just suggest a few things quickly. It produces humility in us. You remember in Exodus chapter 3, as Moses stands before the burning bush, God takes him to take his shoes off. This is holy ground. And in verse 6 it says, right at the end of that verse, Then Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And so it, it humbled him, didn't it? He hid his face. You remember in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah's vision of God in the temple and uh, the seraphim flying around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What's Isaiah's response to that? Woe is me, I'm ruined. He's impressed with his own unworthiness. In Luke chapter 5, when Jesus provides this great catch of fish for Peter, he, 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 he... he, he falls, you know, face down, depart from me. I, I'm, I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy. So when we fear the Lord, what does that produce in us? A sense of our own unworthiness and humility as we approach Him. It also produces praise and worship. As here, that's, that these people fear the Lord, so what are they doing? They're praising Him. They're worshiping Him. And so we acknowledge His greatness and His worthiness of our devotion and worship. The fear of the Lord also produces obedience in us. Now, it's coincidental, we didn't plan this, but Deuteronomy chapter 6, the passage that Roger read this morning, makes that link for us in verse 2, so that your son uh, and your uh, grandson might fear the Lord to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you this day. Remember in Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, takes him to the mountain, binds him, lays him on the altar. He's about ready to come down with a knife. The angel stops him. Remember what the Lord says after that? Now I know that you fear the Lord. Now that I've seen your willingness to go through this and obey me and make this ultimate sacrifice of your only son, now I know that you fear me because of your obedience. And so the fear of the Lord produces obedience to the Lord. And so each of us should ask himself if he fears the Lord. Do you fear the Lord or do I fear the Lord in the way this passage is talking about? If the answer is yes, yes, I fear the Lord, yes. How does that manifest itself in your life? What's your view of self? Do you recognize your own unworthiness and lowliness in view of the Lord? Has it manifest itself in your worship? Do you fear the Lord? Well, how do you worship the Lord then? And has that manifest itself in your service and obedience as a servant of the Lord? Sometimes when I preach sermons like this, I wonder if people are thinking, Bob, why don't you think, why don't you talk about something practical? <laughs> it seems awfully theological. <laughs> talk about The passage is of, and the lesson is of the utmost practical value. 
You see, it establishes the foundation for everything we do in religion. Everything we do is based upon our fear of the Lord. If we don't understand the Lord, if we don't understand who He is and what He's done, well then our practical lives are not going to be what they ought to be. And so this is an immensely practical study. Now it's interesting in the book of Revelation we talked about how it contains a message of encouragement to be faithful and also a warning, but it's also a book about worship. Those who overcome worship. Here's how they worship. Here's what they do in their worship. There are several passages that contain songs like this informing us about worshiping God. What should be our focus in worship? And we don't want to neglect teaching and admonishing one another. We want to emphasize praising God in psalms and songs like this. So I hope that our study together and our time together as we've done some thinking about God through this song, thinking about His attributes, thinking about His work, our relationship to Him, what that, those thoughts ought to produce in us. I hope it's made us think about what we do, what we say, those kinds of things. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge your greatness. We, we acknowledge your worthiness. We acknowledge all these attributes we've talked about today, your righteousness, that you are true, that you are holy. We, we acknowledge your worthiness of our worship and devotion because of who you are and what you've done. At the same time, Father, we recognize our unworthiness, our sinfulness, our lowliness, and our, the fact that we are undeserving of the great blessings that you've bestowed upon us. And yet, Father, you have bestowed upon us those great blessings, especially the gift of your Son, Jesus, who came to this earth, atoned for our sin, so that we, as unworthy as we are, might have fellowship with you. Help us, Father, to fear your name, to increase in fear as the days go by. And Father, we pray that that will produce in us uh, just a sense of awe and adoration, and that we might praise you and glorify you uh, appropriately. And help, uh, we pray, Father, that that sense of fear will produce in us submission to you, and obedience to you, that we will walk in the way that you would have us to walk, that we live the way that you would have us to live, so that our lives might bring glory and honor to you. That's our, that's our goal, Father. That's what we want in this life and in the life to come. We look forward to that day when we, through Jesus Christ, will stand in your presence and glorify you face to face throughout all eternity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.